0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, I'm with Diana
1: Henry. It was always wanting to go other places. At the back of our garden in Port Stewart where I grew up, I really thought it was it was a sort of wheat field. But at the end of it, I thought definitely America was over that horizon.
0: The new edition of her 2005 book, Roast Figs, Sugar Snow, is a lyrical walk through the autumn leaves and winter wonderlands of her favourite food places, as she shares the delicious finds that have made her one of Britain's most well-respected food writers. It's a book that makes you feel warm to your bones. But Diana has been dogged by depression for years and has faced some major life challenges, including cheating death very recently. I was fascinated in how she created such a work of joy. But first I asked her what the idea was behind a new edition of this 18-year-old classic.
1: I think that that book and Crazy Water Pickle Lemons, which were two very early books, were very distinctive and they were published when nobody really knew I was. So I thought there was a new audience that would love them, and I'd always intended that they would be reissued. And I was able also to kind of like, well, certainly with roast figs, any, um, any recipe that anyone had ever written to me about, they were retested. So I didn't have ever had a book which I think is, this is completely perfect. Nothing could go wrong in this book at all. Which makes me great, even when I kind of like you know skim through it myself like oh yeah that oh that recipe oh that recipe so um and I think it hasn't dated at all I mean maybe the photography has slightly um although that's debatable and I don't think the recipes have you know I just think it's I just think it will will not go on forever because we're eating more vegetables and stuff like that and a lot of the food is from places that were kind of cut off because they're in mountainous regions or something like that but that was, that's what makes them really special. I mean, the world has changed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those recipes
0: probably haven't changed much, but you've changed. Your place on the world stage has changed. You are now an incredibly well known and highly respected food writer. You have certainly got a quite a sort of a regal quality about you. Your new Instagram fans, your new people coming to this book possibly for the first time, yeah. how do you think that they
1: will read you? The thing is, I think. More people read me as I did some more commercial books like From the Oven to the Table and Simple and that kind of thing. And Roast Fakes is quite a literary kind of book, so I don't think they necessarily see me that way. But um, I would hope they would be kind of like drawn in by the recipes because they should be confident that they work. And then see, I mean, I didn't think about this. This wasn't the reason to do it. But then they might learn a bit more about me from that book. I mean, <clears throat> I'm not the same person. It was kind of funny when I read it again. I thought, "Oh my God, it's so earnest," because it is really earnest. It's really kind of heart on sleeve. But that—that that was, you know, that was cons- that's sincere. That's what I was like at the time. I seem young. Um, I, I actually thought it was quite good when I read it again, and I hadn't read it for years. I cooked out of it, but not read the actual essay. Thought, "Oh, you were you were really pretty good for the, <laughs> that stage of the stage of your career, actually." And I felt, in fact, that the. the the book that I'm working on at the minute, um, it sort of helped because I thought, you know, I knew nothing when I wrote that book, really, I just wrote the book that I wanted to write. Well, what you did know, and what's really interesting, and you haven't actually
0: said this in in your answer, is it's about travel, but more It's about place. It's Mm. not about going to places. It's not about the destination. It's what happens. It's that liminal quality that travel, real travel, when you observe with travel really gives you. And match that with your sort of literary, cerebral, kind of Oxford University literature graduate mind. That's what that book is. I wonder if anyone's picking that up and giving you that back in, the wonderful social media feedback.
1: I think... um I think I write quite a lot about place anyway in the introductions to recipes because a lot of, I think partly what I do is curate recipes as well as create new ones mm-hmm. so I think I, I often have a kind of sense of place in what I write in the in the telegraph or in the books so I think in some ways that won't be a shock, there'll just be more of it and then the one I'm working on now which won't be out for quite a while um, is kind of off the back of Roast fig Sugar Snow, it's called North and I've been working on that, Well, it'll be nearly 25 years by the time it comes out. And all of that is traveling. But I don't, I've not done it in the way that, okay, I'm a writer, I'm going off now for six months. I mean, I had children, those trips are expensive. So I would do them in school holidays and have terms and that kind of thing. And um, I mean, Ted, that my oldest is 25 now and he's a doctor. But, you know, he was being dragged around at two years old. Late at night, actually, between kind of like clubs and coffee houses in Vienna. And he's got no memory of it at all, except he remembers the train set that I wouldn't buy him on that trip. He was like, Christ, how do we get that home with everything else? So I think place is incredibly important to me it is but
0: it's what place does to you that I think comes over so strongly in the book you know you go to a place and you do your due diligence you you do all the history and stuff but then you observe and it is those notebooks full of those tiny tiny little details that really make those and it's not even necessarily the recipes because actually it's the stories behind the recipes that I love to read that takes me to that place but it also takes me to your Place. It's t- it takes me to your experience of that place,
1: and that's what I get as a reader of Diana Henry. And I hope people relate to that. I mean, somebody actually on Amazon said about how to eat a peach, which was very much about places yeah. and food. Um, I don't really care what. I mean, it's a nasty review. <laughs> I don't care where she is. I mean, who is this woman, and why is she kind of like why is everyone in Europe? And it's like, well, because that's mainly what I could afford to do as soon as I started <laughs> traveling. But I didn't travel till quite. I mean, we, we didn't travel as a family because um, there were four children, and my father and mother, and lived in Northern Ireland. So it was expensive to get anywhere. So I didn't go abroad until I was um, fifteen or sixteen, and then I went to France, and that was a, my first time on a plane. And I, you know, I was very focused on getting to France, but I looked out the window as we were kind of like, you know, airborne, and I thought, oh, nobody told me this. Look at this. Look at the clouds. Amazing. Well, actually, you know,
0: when we first met and uh, we were talking about how to eat a peach i the image of you that has stuck with me from that conversation was the little girl on a picnic rug in Northern Ireland watching the planes fly by yeah um, and you said we always dream of leaving of, as Northern Irish people always dream of leaving I certainly did. and that comes from a place of hardship, the troubles
1: yeah, um hardship. I don't know that's a funny word, I think. <laughs> Misery. maybe but That's an even worse word in a way. Well, a collective hardship, isn't it? It's a place which yeah, um, I didn't grow up in an, an easy time. There. I mean, I wasn't in Belfast. I was about fifty miles north of Belfast. But the um, the troubles were really all pervasive in a way that you really didn't realize at the time. I mean, there's a fantastic documentary on recently. Once upon a time in Northern Ireland documentary series. <gasps> which I started to watch it. I watched five hours straight through and went to bed at six in the morning. And I got the children to watch it, and um, they just said, "You know, there's people kind of like petrol bombing. You know, it's, it's you know explosions, kind of like troops everywhere, security checks. You have to all your bags checked and everything." And that's what it was like, and we took it. We took it as normal. And um, going to Belfast, you knew to go shopping. M&S quite often was a target for um, incendiary devices, so we always had to make. Uh, you know make arrangements for where we would go if there was a bomb scare but then also where we would go beyond that because quite often what would happen is they do they do one place then they think where people would go to then they put something there as well so you had to have your wits about you and um, I don't think I realized at the time how stressful that was actually and not just the danger of what would happen the hatred. It's really horrible growing up in hatred. Yeah, and it's interesting that you turn to books and I wonder
0: if there's there's escapism, absolutely. That's what I read in all your books is this ability to escape. Uh, And that's what I mean by taking us with you as as the reader. You're escaping and you take us into this very lyrical world. And the way that you describe food is visceral so we can taste it and feel it. Um, and, And I think that I wonder how much that has to do with the little girl trying to sort of escape into her head. I mean, you know, you talk about the uh, your teacher re- reading you, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Wilder. Yeah. And, and actually that's your first food moment. So, you know, but that's a wonderful escape. It's a wonderful image. On oh, these, yeah. I
1: read endlessly, and I would go. Actually, if I went into the spare room, I could slide under the bed on the far side of it, under it, and nobody could find me. And I read. I mean, that was easy for me to go through four books a week. And, um and there were they were kind of like they weren't always in other places but the places did that was a, an important part of the book to me. I mean, I used to, read to th- I used to read things about lumberjacks and that kind of thing. I read a lot of stuff that was set in America, funny yeah. enough. And I, I, I don't know whether that was deliberate or just that was coincidental. And then I, th- there's a lovely book called Miss Happiness and Miss Flower uh, by River Garden, which is about um, the, the, it's about Japan, really, our Japanese dolls. And I've never been there yet. But I, that's in my mind because, well, I have to go there because I read that book when you I was it's little. In your head. Absolutely. Take us
0: to your first food moment, which is that book that actually is the
1: inspiration for the the name of the book little house in the big woods was the first one that we were read and it was read by my um kind of like p6 teacher and we were allowed to put it was in, i can just remember it happening on kind of like how old? And it was getting oh that is 10 so um on afternoons when it was just starting to get dark and they turned the lights on in the classroom. And she said, okay, you can put your heads down. So we used to put our heads down on our arms and she used to read us this stuff. And it was, it's funny when you reread them again because they're actually, there's not a huge narrative. It's mostly about making food. It's about, you know, deciding you're going to put the pumpkins in the attic, um, making stuff to put up, as they say, for the winter. So there's an awful lot of practical kind of preparation in them. But it was in the snow, which is another thing I absolutely love. It was in the snow, and it was about this a family life, but a good family life. So there was a sense of place, there was a family life, and I loved the chapter about maple syrup. What they did in the, in the book, and they do still now in um, wherever maple syrup um, is produced, um, they boil a tap. And when it gets to a certain temperature, you can then pour it onto snow and it becomes a kind of toffee and it just seemed amazing to me that you get this thing out of trees well it's quite magical, and also you don't do much with maple syrup you know the the sap comes out, you tap it and it goes into a bucket or now they have kind of these um, systems of tubing um, and then you boil it and you boil it until there's a special thing you do is you kind of you've got to lift it on this kind of like metal plate and you should see it they call it sheeting it it kind of like drips at a certain kind of viscosity and then you know that's ready and then then it's put into containers and um i went to vermont eventually to um during sugaring season which is what they call it there and i just loved it if you we we got in it quite late one night and there was a there was a moon and kind of like it was a very starry night but you could see that thing that Robert Frost has written about, um, about the, the the silver buckets, kind of like, you can see them in the snow, and you can see the shadow they create. And I spent a long time with this guy called Willis Woods. He might still be making it, I don't know. But when they make the syrup, um, it ha- it's constant because, you know, it doesn't stop flowing. So they keep boiling it, and then they have little naps in their sugar house. And all of these little houses are kind of like, the smoke coming out of the top of them, and I thought I just I loved it, I, and I also really love the flavor.
0: But um, I love if, the I love the bit in the book where you said, "How will I know when I see the snow oh sugar
1: Oh they're I'm, all they're all smoking. They look because like they're on fire. Fire, yeah, because they're all they've all got the kind of like fires under the big cauldron. Um, I love the flavor because it's kind of, the other thing is kind of you would think that maple syrup is produced in the autumn it's not it's produced on the cusp of winter and spring but it tastes very much like you know it's tawny it sort of tastes like leaves or something like that you think it would it would be flavored with those in a way Uh, but no it's a very sweet thing but it's and seems autumnal but it's in that another part of the year which is interesting and I got to go to a Sugar on Snow Party in Vermont, which I thought, oh, my God, they're not really going to have those. They have them. You see notices all over the place, but particularly on kind of like village hall doors or kind of church hall doors, kind of like, you know, Sugar on Snow Party. And what they generally have is um, ham, beans, baked potatoes, sometimes slaw, And they have the they have the sugar on snow and they have warm um, cider, cider as an apple juice, because they call proper cider hard cider there. Um, but this is, you know, this is what people gather to do. I read a lot of stuff that was set in America, yeah. funny enough, and I, I I don't know whether that was deliberate or just that was coincidental. I have got very romantic notions, which are mean, misplaced, I know, about um, America. But I think that's from growing up as it was a place we were going to go to. And also, I was, grew up in kind of like, your know, 70s and 80s. And that, that culture was absolutely... Yeah. It was just fundamental to kind of like.
0: The the American dream, still. Yeah. I think
1: so, yes. I did an interview actually with a a woman from New Yorker, and she said that what she got from me was just a sense of yearning. And I definitely have that. I don't know whether it's positive or negative because it's about escape. But it's also it's about the wonderfulness of out there. Yeah,
0: it's the dreaming is the little girl on the picnic rug.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it was always wanting to go yeah. other places. Yeah. I mean, at the back of our garden in Port Stewart, where I grew up, I really thought it was, it was a sort of wheat field. But at the end of it, I thought definitely America was over that horizon. Oh. And... I thought a lot about America.
0: Well, not unsurprisingly, because most of the Irish yeah. migrants went to America. Yeah. The whole country would have been talking about America. It would be in its bones.
1: Well, there was a sense that, yeah, that was kind of like you you went That's there. But also, you know, getting to London was the sort of thing. I was more worried about coming here. It was, I felt it was cultural, and I was right, uh, culturally very different. And it took me quite a long time to settle down, Um but the yearnings were for everywhere Paris, New York, wherever and I'm still like that I'm like a kid about going places and I still do as much research even if I'm not even going to write about it like I went to Poland this summer I was like, Krakow, oh my god, it's fabulous and the bakeries in Warsaw, I mean I went to I basically arranged to go to Poland so that I could meet this fantastic woman called Monica who's got four bakeries self-taught baker taught herself after she'd been to California for a while And it was just the highlight of the trip was being with Monica and talking to her and eating the wild blueberry cakes, which, you know, blueberries here are nothing compared to the wild blueberry things, the the wild blueberries there. It's wonderful. So it never, it never disappoints. Yeah. And then I went, the last thing we did this summer was I went with both my sons. I thought it might be the sort of last time we'd go on a kind of jaunt together, so we went to Paris for a long weekend. And that was brilliant. I've been to Paris loads of times before, but... Uh, one evening, actually, we had, we had arranged to do too much on this particular day, so we had a dinner booking, And but we'd been intending to go to the Eiffel Tower before because it's lit up, and my youngest had never been there before. So we just got in an Uber, and it was kind of funny, you put an Eiffel Tower just in your destination. <laughs> and as we drove there, um, we kept seeing it kind of like down streets, down streets and it was huge, and then we got there, and he left us off right at the foot. And as soon as we got out... It was lit up, then it started doing its glittering thing, its sparkling. And it was just like totally. I was like a kid. And so were my so were my sons, which is like look at this this is unbelievable oh my god I'm so glad. you see this is meant to be we're here now because we're late and now we can see it and it's the best time I'd ever seen the Eiffel Tower and I've been going since I was like 20
0: yeah and that sort of childish delight is the thing that kind of goes all the way through the book I think it's just so everything's so interesting so fascinating but most of the book is in Europe and your second food moment is in Scandinavia um, the Danish roast pork with pickled prunes and cucumber. Oh, my yeah, God, I can't wait funny. to make this. This is so unctuous. Tell us why you chose
1: this of all the recipes in the book. Because this is the first dish, the very first thing I wrote the first time I went to... Eight! That's interesting, isn't it? Um, when I went to Scandinavia. So I went to Copenhagen, and we, it was near Christmas, and it just snorted, started to snow on the badly on the way into the city. And by the time we got to the hotel, I mean, there's nothing open and they didn't have any, their restaurant open. So I said, look, we haven't eaten for hours. So they brought this dish up with um, rye bread. In your hotel? In the hotel, yeah. So it was, it was the pork with the crackling and pickle prunes and pickled cucumber. I mean, that's kind of like Legion. You do that all the time in, in Scandinavia. And I just thought, and with beer, and I just thought, wow, nobody cares about this food. Um, you know, because they just think Scandinavia mm, at that time, definitely. And I thought, I think there's I think there's something to this place. Um, so I went there and I've been back loads and loads of times. I went on to do Finland and uh, Sweden and kind of everywhere, really. And, and, and Norway, which is stunningly beautiful. So I feel I've kind of grown up with Scandinavia. I started travelling there as soon as it was... You could actually do it commercially. And that was when kind of like cheap light started. Yeah. And, um, and then I just, and I just kept going.
0: Do you know, it's really interesting, that little Freudian slip you made there, where you said the first thing I wrote uh, when I got to Scandinavia, but actually you meant eight. Um, you write things real, I feel. That's what your recipes do. And it's interesting, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the fact that we both came from telly backgrounds. Um, You were a TV producer. Um, You know, our job in telly was to go out and find stories, to find the kind of the top line, but then the people to make that real, to make it to take people by the hand and take them to a place possibly that they hadn't been. Mm. I get that very much from your writing. It's a very generous act. You sort of take people with you, but you give them, as I said, before your experience of it to
1: introduce people to a whole new style of cuisine it's funny that basically i just want i want people to feel like i feel mm, a, that's right. like this is great have it but i find it weird when people say that they do so often say on kind of social media oh you're very generous with your recipes you're very generous with your recommendations why would i not be i just think i think i mean i have i suffer from depression so that, that there's another side to me but i just basically think life is fantastic and it's very rich. And I can't believe that people are either bored or fed up because it seems to me, oh my God, there's a never ending. Places to explore, people to meet, things to eat, new ingredients. And I just seem to kind of like gobble it all up. But then I want to give it to other people because when people, when people write to me and say, oh, we did exactly the restaurant you went to in Paris. Well, I don't think, okay, oh yeah, I really scored there. I think, Oh my god, I want! And were they all good? Because then I immediately think, did you like them? Did they come up to scratch? That sort of thing. But I, I really want people to have a good time. Yeah. You know, those stories are d- designed
0: to make people happy, aren't they? you You know, you take us. Particularly in this book, uh, into autumn and winter, and you describe the food in this really cosy blanket of words that is
1: designed to make us feel great. I'm careful though, I think, because i don't want to I don't want to write purple prose. You've got to be very careful, I think, when you're writing enthusiastically, and also I don't want it to be without substance. I mean, when I'm writing about Fiuli in the northeast of Italy. I learned a lot about that place because it was very different to anywhere I'd ever been. So I had to give the background there um you know the, the spice cellars and everything that you wouldn't expect to find in any bit of italy so it's not just the loveliness of anywhere it's kind of like the depth of places absolutely as well. and
0: this is your third food
1: moment actually so do tell us about the rich history of fulium oh, and how you got see. snowed in there oh my god well i we've been in the we've been in the dolomites and the kind of like the next stage was to go further up north and for really, Yuli, I'd never really heard about it. Um, in the northeast, and it it borders Austria, and there's snow, and um, there it's the densest growth of beech trees anywhere in Europe, actually. And it turned out to be completely delightful. I mean, very untouristy, um, very very regional. I mean, I did yes, the kind of the first day was quite tough, and that we drove. Um, to Flegly, and we still had probably about two hours to go, and um, we had an we had an altercation with the snowplow, which meant that the car was a write off actually. So that was not a good experience. But, but when you're on these things, I don't know, you're in a slightly different world because you're off to kind of try things out, and you know, right? Yes. Yeah, so that wasn't something I expected, but that was an experience, and we ended up staying in this um inn in Saurus that I'd booked. And Cyrus is very interesting because it's very famous for its um, smoked food. But the food there is completely different. You might expect, you know, it is more Germanic, more kind of like connected to Austria. And that, that area was a kind of like a bit of a channel in the Austro-Hungarian Empire where people, I mean, the men from there were spice sellers, famously. So they would go off during um, the season and they would take spices with them. And then they would come back. And it's about the only place, I'm sure it's the only place in Italy where so many spices are used with pasta. There's one pasta dish, it's stuffed pasta, and 13 different spices in it. And I had it when I was there. Um, and it tastes kind of like medieval. But it's basically because the women had to use those spices up because they wouldn't be able to be taken out again. Um, they have poppy seeds. There's wild horseradish. Um, the first thing we ate was smoked goose, called smoked goose as a with with leaves, and then we had goulash, and Fuglie has its own version, and then we had their version of strudel, which is Gabbana. So that was different as well. So there was just great things to discover yeah. there. I mean, that part of Northeast Italy is has always, since medieval
0: times, as you say, been really open to influence i mean the Jews in venice for a start you know Jews coming from all over the world and as you say it's full of lots of influences from all over the northern hemisphere but the the recipe that you've chosen which is the tagliatelle with roast pumpkin ricotta and smoked cheese is actually something that you've made yourself and this
1: is something i had there but i had it there not with fresh ricotta and then some kind of smoked cheese i had it with smoked ricotta And you don't get that here very, very easily. So I came home and that was the dish that I made instead of the one that I'd done there. And actually, in some ways, I like it better. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. To travel around and be inspired and you have then to find other, other ingredients to make it. And sometimes you end up with something that you like better. I mean, it's not Friulian anymore, but it's inspired by there and it's a, it's a lovely dish I love pumpkin as well I'm a massive like yeah, oh my god you, you write a lot about that I mean you've taken a season or well two seasons
0: autumn and winter to pull all these recipes together and it's about a connection this is a very comforting experience isn't it your fourth food moment it's Christmas bread and butter pudding but it's not. It's all about cranberries. It's
1: about the gloriousness of a cranberry. It's like a Christmas story. I just always wanted to see them. I mean, I've looked at pictures in magazines, and they're, they're there in the fall. So there's the the blue sky, the kind of tawny gold colours of the leaves, and then these these bogs, which is where they where they grow. Um, and they are they they go into the bogs with something like. They're sort of like big uh, whisks, and they, you know, they basically agitate the water so they all float to the top. So there are just then ponds and ponds of this crimson color, and I mean, you can't quite believe it because they're so stunning. And that was one of the great things that that I did in research for this book. I wanted to see cranberries. I went to Cape Cod. It was terrific, um, and I'm very fond of the little cranberry because, you know, there are there's a, li- the, you know, there's a limited amount of winter fruit and the cranberry could be one that keeps on going till spring. We only here you stop being able to get it at Christmas. And it's not immediately appealing because it's bitter and you have to cook it. But it is so sharp that it contrasts brilliantly with something like if you're layering up uh, bread and butter pudding and there's ap- fresh apple in that as well. And sometimes I put mincemeat into it. So it's like, it's very good for people who don't like normal Christmas pudding because it's like a very light version of that, and um, and I just I just think that I just think that little cranberry is so it's so cheering and it's so resilient. I mean, you put those in the bottom drawer of your, your, your vegetable drawer in the fridge, they'll be there in three months' time, I and mean, nothing nothing happens to them. You can keep using them. And of
0: course, they've got such a rich history. The Native Americans they used them right from the very beginning.
1: Yes, to kind of dye things as well as to eat them. And what I also discovered, which I didn't know at all, is that a lot of the the pickers, the people who work in the industry, are from Cape Verde, or they're, or they're from, descendants of people who, who are from Cape Verde. And um, they don't think of it as something you eat with turkey or that you do anything sweet with. They like it. At the end of the season, they have, um, they have a hog roast. They like it with roast pork. And it is actually great with roast pork. And the other thing about it is that in Russia... You get it mixed with uh, horseradish. So we just, we don't. We, kind of like nearly, nearly all, all the ingredients that we use could be used in different ways if we just thought about it. Yeah. And I just think, you know, to have, a, to have an ingredient that takes on another, another kind of character and another character and another, well, it's just brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. I've read this book three times now. I read
0: it in the heat of my French summer holiday. And I tried to find Mikui prunes that somebody from the Guild of Food Writers had told me was in Berger Market <laughs> failed. Um, I read it again uh, when I got back and I just read it on the train. It makes me really happy and un- unusually. Don't tell my listeners this. Uh, but I don't really read the recipes in books most of the time. I read the stories so, around. Yeah. I'm no, much more interested that. in the writing and the process. Um But I loved reading your recipes. They actively made me happy uh, because there's so much unctuousness about them. Do they... You just read it again. Um, You told me just before we started recording. Does it make you happy? can you when you're feeling down when you're feeling depressed can you look through some of these recipes does it and remember these trips does oh, it yeah, make definitely. you happy
1: oh yeah definitely i mean because there were fantastic trips my kind of a lot of the time my my son was really was very very young when i did these but also just uh i remember the places but also i think it's very happy making food actually i do flick through it and i'm kind of doing it more now because i've got the new new edition. And I go, oh, yeah, I'm to make that. And, because, and I added some new things, which I think are really lovely as well. So I'm, I, I'm thrilled with it. I think it's better than the book was in the first place. Yeah. You don't yeah. get to say that very often. <laughs> but, no, I think it is, and especially at this time. I mean, this is a perfect day. It's kind of golden light, just starting to get cold, though, because it's, you know, the 6th of October. And I think to be carried through autumn and winter with this stuff, because winter we find we talk about it in, in a negative way and the Scandinavians they for food for them is their antidote to darkness yeah. and that's why they have their candles they have the cinnamon buns they have everything and I think through food you can definitely make yourself more grounded more earth more connected more aware of the season I mean summer you know basically I'm trying to avoid cooking like most people especially now um, with global warming but in the winter I really like that retreat back into the kitchen. Um, and I, I probably invite people around more in the autumn winter than I do at other times of year because it's it's about getting around the table. I mean, last night I just made... My son was, was going back up to um, his hospital where he works and he does all this kind of meal prep stuff because he doesn't he doesn't want to buy sandwiches. He thinks you should be eating proper food. Yeah, I did a good job there. And um, I made him chicken paprika last night so that he could take it this morning in his little Tupperware boxes. And it was so lovely. It was such a warming dish full of peppers and then the heat of paprika. And I thought, I am very lucky though. Do you know I'm very lucky because these things make me happy. They don't make everybody happy.
0: You know, I think that there's a dichotomy, isn't there, between sort of hardship, misery, or whatever you want to call it, uh, which leads to depression very often, and the pleasure of eating, writing about food, feeding people um and i think that they are two sides of the same coin in in many ways i mean you you have been through some really really testing times recently yeah. um you know you've been through breast cancer you've had a double mastectomy you've been divorced twice you've lost your father and your best friend and last year you almost died of an autoimmune disease yeah. uh, i mean couple that with with depression anyway how are you
1: feeling as you approach your 60th birthday I think I'm the happiest I've ever been, to be quite honest with you. Um, You know, a lot of the time you spend kind of like, certainly when I was in television, it was always about getting there. You had to do a more difficult series or a more difficult program. And I'm not at that stage of life anymore. And also, you know, kind of things with my children have eased up because they're not there. They don't need constant attention. But at the same time, you know, they're they're grown-ups and they're, 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 they're lovely people. So I'm very, very happy about that. And nearly dying is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I already had a thing when I suffered from depression, which I did a lot during my late teens and 20s. Um, You just want life to be normal. That was what I just... Can't my life just be normal? Do I have to struggle with this? And I would do it for periods every day, and then it would kind of go away again until until it would come back. And basically, over the years, I've managed to get on top of that. I mean, I, I do have bad days and it's generally when i'm too tired but the thing if you've suffered from depression or you've had really tough stuff like that you just want ordinary life and you really appreciate it so you've got that and then then i nearly died how how thrilled are you going to be to now be able to have a quite ordinary life of not being not struggling with depression and having kind of like well cheated death and having being back with my children and back doing all the things I want to do I mean seriously there's a leak in my kitchen roof at the minute the garden looks awful but I said to my sister yesterday yeah but my god look the weather's beautiful um Ted and Gillies are really happy I'm busy doing a new book I mean how good does it get
0: thanks for listening if you love this podcast, please do go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review it. And then you can head over to my Substack where you'll find more in extra bytes from Diana Henry. Just click the link in the show notes and I'll see you next week.